Let me see you put them up Reach the sky, touch the stars up above Cause it's one time for the underdog I'm Patrick Vidavid, the host of ITM, and today I have a special guest with me, Tom Bailu. You've seen him probably on some interviews with the YouTube channel he runs called Impact Theory, and he ran a company called Quest from zero to a billion dollars. We're going to talk about how you can monetize your skills. Tom, what's up, man? Thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for having me. Yes. You're a pro. I like your stuff, man. You're, you're very different than a lot of the guys <laughs> online. I got to tell you Thank that. Thank you. So, uh, before we get into it, obviously, um, anybody who knows you, they've heard your story, and we're going to go through that part, you know, growing a business 57,000% first three years, 1,200 employees. Uh, I think at one point, you guys had your product, Quest Bar, uh, being sold at what, 40,000 different uh, uh, points that you guys sell, like some yep. stores, all these other things, and uh, very, very good stories. So I want to go through that part, and we'll talk a little bit of family, a little bit of current times, what you're thinking about, what's taking place, and then we'll go from there. So before we do, do, uh, go into, uh, deeper into the business, I'm in high school with you, okay? okay. We're in 10th grade. Yep. Who's Tom Bailo? <laughs> Uh, so I wanted to be a comedian. So in 10th grade, that would have been my identity a thousand percent. Really? Oh yes. Every day at lunch, I practiced my stand-up. So I would, let's say we're at a table with 10 people, I would do a 45-minute impromptu comedy routine. And my goal always was to get, there was one guy, if you could get him just right, he'd actually spit his soda through his nose. Um, so I was always trying to like hit that level of funny, and I just thought that was going to be the course of my life. In fact, I, if it weren't for social media, I would be convinced that someone from high school right now is thinking of me as a failed stand-up comic somewhere. Um, and now, before when did this start, though? Is this tenth grade or prior to that? Um, it probably. So my sister was really good at sports, and she's older than me, so I naturally followed her into that. But I did not have her proclivity for sports. I did not yet have a growth mindset, so I didn't think I could work to get better. So I stepped into it. I had no natural talent. It was very embarrassing. Some of my most embarrassing moments are related to sports. Uh, I'll give you one quick one. I was the slowest person in the district. I ran cross country, and um, my thighs used to rub together till they bled. And it was just like a, a whole mess. When you say thighs, but, I mean, were you heavy? You yeah, were, I was about 200 pounds when I was 14. So it was... Uh, How tall were you at 14? Uh, I was relatively tall, but I'll put me at like 5'8", five, 5'9". Five, I mean, that's, you're heavy if you're 20 yeah, pounds. Yeah, yeah, five, for eight, sure. I, by today's standards, not so much. But back then, yes, people thought of me as being a little bit chubby. Interesting. But, but by, like, when people look at my photos from before, it's like, you weren't heavy. Well, that's compared to now. So comedian. Yeah, that was like the whole shtick. So about in seventh grade, I found theater, I found that kind of stuff, and really poured myself into speech and debate. Um, and yeah, I thought I'd be a stand-up comic. Now, is it comedian because you had a tough life growing up? Because, you know, comedians sometimes, they have to make people laugh and they have to make things easier. Kevin Hart, you know, he had to figure out a way to make himself calmer in the pressure situation? Was it just purely because you like making people laugh and entertaining people? I think some of it was where do I fit in the family dynamic? Got it. And realizing that, oh, I, I could make people laugh, and then they start turning to me to make them laugh, and then I found that was a way, um, I think I would have been picked on a lot if I, because I was in band, I was a little bit chubby, I was bad at sports, so I would have been picked on, but I found that if I could make people laugh, I could disarm them. So the biggest guy in the school, uh, one said, yeah, don't, don't fuck with Bill you because he's funny. And so like <laughs> that became my thing was I could talk my way out of anything. Got but it. when I went to college, 
because my comedy was based on making fun of myself, I wanted to take myself more seriously. I wanted to stop doing the self-deprecation all the time. And so because I didn't have a wounded childhood, because I did not have a need to make people laugh, it was just something that had served me, um, I stopped doing it on a dime. Self-deprecation. Yep, totally. Because you didn't want that to be your identity. Correct. Now, do you think there's a link between uh, comedians and genius because their brain goes a million miles an hour. So That's do you think there's a link there? I think that if you're good, there there is definitely well, an yeah, element of genius. Yeah, a guy squirting coke out of his nose, so you must be doing something Look, right. Look, when you compare me to a Robin Williams or a Kevin Hart yeah. or somebody like that who, who's just at the top of their game, I was never funny like that. So I was what I'll call living room funny. So in a living room situation, if I told you, hey, I want to be a comedian, you'd be like, yeah, you're going to be great. This is amazing. But one of the most transformational moments in my life. Do you know who Mitch Hedberg is? I don't. Oh my God, Patrick, I'm about to introduce you to somebody here. So I went to, I decided I was gonna get back into it. Okay. So long story short, my life was not going in the direction I wanted after college. I was looking desperately to find like, how am I gonna get back on track? Yep. So I think, well, I'll go back to comedy. It's, I was so good at it. So I uh, do a uh, routine at the Laugh Factory, open mic night. LA. LA. Okay. And at open mic night, you start with about 300 people. And I was the first one there, I did my thing. I was funny, but not, no one's gonna remember me. And everyone starts leaving as their friend finishes the open mic. And then at the end, you get really famous comedians that come on mm -hmm. and they try new material, so it's usually bad. So by the last comedian, it's like, I'm not joking, maybe 12 people left. Wow. And finally we get to, they're about to announce the last comedian. I can't take it anymore. So I tell my friend, hey, let's get out of here. We stand up, this guy comes on stage, and he's like, yo, before you go, you're gonna wanna stay for this last guy because he is the funniest man in America. And I thought, all right, that's pretty big hype, let's see. We sit back down and this guy I have never heard of before in my life, Mitch Hedberg, comes out on stage. He is so funny that partway through the act, I actually think to myself, can you die laughing? One time a guy handed me a picture of me, said, here's a picture of me when I was younger. Every picture is of you when you were younger. <laughs> because I can't catch my breath. Wow. It was insanity. Now you can Google him, he's that funny. And I was like, okay, I could get that good, but I would have to dedicate my entire life to it because I now see what funny is. And getting some laughs is different than making somebody ask, can you die laughing? Well, you know, that's the part that I think you and I have in common with is, did you logically right there say, I, I don't know if I can compete with this guy, so logically this is not the business for me, I'm leaving this industry. Is that kind of what it was? I said it a little bit differently. I was like, I needed to believe I could beat him on mm -hmm. a long enough timeline. Yeah. Like I needed to believe if I put my energy and effort yes. into this, I could beat him. And so I said that to myself, but in the room, still there sitting like sweat from laughing, I was like, I'm never doing this again Got it. because I'm not willing to give myself over to it. That was always meant to lead me to something Interesting. else. So, because what I wanted to do was direct, which is like the biggest cliche of all time. So I wanted to direct and I thought, well, if I can get attention by being funny, then I've got the opportunity. Now, you know, the other part that's interesting with, uh, with your story is the fact that you, you're not a drug guy. You said the first time you tried marijuana, you were 26 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, well, that was the first time I tried alcohol. It was even later for marijuana, but yeah. So wait a minute, first time you tried alcohol was 26? 26. 26. Marijuana's later. Later. You said you've never done cocaine, you've never done nothing Correct. else outside of that. So. What was, is it, were you born in a faith-based family with strong values That's and principles? No, but there's something about my mom. She has a way of like making it sound like a really bad idea. And my, I had a lot of aunts and uncles and um, second cousins and stuff that were all alcoholics, drug addicts. Um, and watching them, I thought, ooh, 
that is not a good look. I mean, it, like, real, like, some real white trashy stuff. Yeah. And so I was just like, no. And my mom was chiming in with, it's way bad. You don't want to do it. You don't want to end up like that. So she's in my ear making it sound really logical to not do it. And I'm watching people act the fool who are doing it. So I just thought, yeah. I'll was there anything she said that was different out of the ordinary? Like, was it fear-based? Absolutely, fear you're gonna based. die. You're gonna do this. All you, the you'll ruin your life somehow, some way. Yeah. I, I, when I thought I was gonna have kids, yeah. I wanted to ask my mom, like, you were so good. Like, neither my sister or I ever got into trouble. We never did drugs. We never drank. But, really? Yeah, but she wasn't like some tyrant about it. So I, I had a whole thing where I was gonna have her document like how she did it. It's very impressive. I don't know. Have you ever interviewed your mom? I haven't, but I want to do a legacy video for her. I, I think would that would be fascinating. Mortified. You're talking three kids, no, no drugs or alcohol? Two kids, but yeah. Two kids, no drugs, no, no alcohol. No drugs, no alcohol, no trouble, nothing. My sister to this day is like the most straight and narrow person you will meet. So when you tried it, what was it like for you? Like, yeah, alcohol? Just, both of them. Oh, alcohol made me feel like I was suppressing the urge to dance on the table. It is awesome, and I love it the most. I just don't let myself do it because it's not, in, it's not congruent with wanting to live forever. Um, there's just too many downsides, but that shit is fun. So like, I get how people get in trouble. Yeah. I just don't have an addictive personality. So for me, it was easy to be like, yeah, this is fun, but I can weigh it against the disadvantages and there are way too many. Um, marijuana makes me feel like my head is heavy and I just want to sleep. I do not understand. Like, There are some people that metabolize it in a way that they love it, they feel mm -hmm. creative, whatever. Yeah. I feel like someone is pressing play and pause on my brain. It's obnoxious. So not, it didn't work out for you at all? Not at all. Interesting. Now your friends, did your friends do anything? Were your friends drinking? Were they smoking pot? Were not they in high school, but in college, yeah, sure. Okay, so in college, you're around them, they're offering it to you, all nothing happens, you're saying no, not interested. How, uh, so how are you processing that? Because I understand there's a part where it's, mom told me this, but then you leave. So did your parents raise you in a way where they controlled you or they kind of let you be so you never had to rebel against them? I never had to rebel against my parents. Got it. Um, my dad was into his thing and, and that, like, if anything, I was trying to do things to get my dad's attention but not in a destructive way. But that's part of what drew me to filmmaking was that was how he and I bonded. My mom was tailor-made to be my parent. So she did not play. I remember one time my friend came in to school and he was like, dude, my mom tried to slap me and I blocked her and she burst out crying. She's never gonna slap me again. And I was like, I'm doing that. The next time my mom tries to slap me, I'm gonna block it. This is gonna be amazing. And so I'm pushing my mom's buttons and she goes to slap me and I block it. And I'm like, this is over, I won. And she goes to slap me on the other side and I block that too. And I'm like, I shut this woman down. And as I'm celebrating, pow, she hits me with the third one. And I remember in the moment, I wasn't mad. I was like, respect. Like, my mom Relentless. is not the one that stops and starts crying wow. when you push against her. Like, she would just raise the level. So because I had so much respect for my mom, my mom always made me feel crazy loved, like even in those moments, and was my biggest cheerleader and always told me I could do anything. Yeah, I just never felt like I had to push back. How were her parents? Um, her parents were dysfunctional, I think, to say the least. And I remember my mom used to force her parents to hug us and tell us they loved us because they never did with her. Wow. And so she just wasn't going to play that with her kids. So for me, it was always that. It was hugs and goodnight kisses and I love you and, you know, just it was always there. But never trying to control you to the point where you had to rebel. No, it's weird. Like, she really did. Like, she instilled fear, but she let that be my own fear. Like, I was, I was definitely afraid of failing. You got straight A's in my family, that was that. But I wasn't afraid of my parents. Um, and then you 
didn't drink, you didn't do drugs because that was gonna ruin your life. And then I think because she helped me believe that my future was gonna be awesome, I didn't wanna f it up. Yeah. So now after that, uh, you know, you go into wanting to be, you know, in the film industry, you're wanting to go to that direction. Talk a little bit on that. Yeah, so my dad makes an offhanded comment when I'm 12 years old. So this is like the classic case of Bill Gates has a computer when he's a kid, and because of that, he's just a little bit ahead of everybody in that area. My dad's work happened to have a camcorder before anybody had cameras. I mean, now, like, people today can't imagine a time where you don't have a camera with you at all times. But when I was a kid, that was super weird. And so my dad would bring this video camera home, and me and my friend would mess around with it. And at the time, I thought I wanted to be in front of the camera. I just always knew where to put the camera to make something funny or whatever. And so I slowly started being the guy behind the camera. My dad made an offhanded comment, and he was like, I think you're actually better behind the camera than you are in front of the camera. Now, he may have been trying to save me from myself and saying, like, you're terrible in front of the camera, kid, so you should get behind it. But he said it in a way that, like, made me think, oh, wow, my dad thinks I'm good behind the camera. So then I started focusing behind the camera. Yeah. We bonded over films. That was, like, our shtick. And I, like, I want humans to be blank slates, but the reality is we're not. And while our ability to change is astronomical, there are definitely things that we have responses to. And I respond to visual things with extreme aggression. And so when I see something, man, it'll hit me really hard. So you didn't have to like push me to get into film. Like I loved it. And then realizing that I had an intuitive understanding of where to put the camera or whatever to make it funny. Um, and then my dad saying that, and then like, oh, you have to pick something to study in school. It's just like, it, it snowballed. And so it was never like, oh, this is my greatest passion. It just like, little by little, I became more obsessed yeah. with it, more obsessed with it, and dove deeper into it. So go to film school, and long story short, the beginning of my film career is extraordinary. I'm killing it. Um, and I thought I was naturally talented. I thought, like, growth mindset didn't exist when I was a kid. Like, I never heard those words until I was probably in my 30s. So as a kid, it was like, you're either born with it or you're not. And so that's what I thought it was with film. Mm -hmm. I just thought I, I knew how to direct. Complete opposite of the way you think today. 1,000% in the wow. opposite direction. Yeah. And this is what ends up happening is exactly what led me to that. So I'm in film school, my first films are good, and I start getting attention, and USC film school is dog-eat-dog. -dog. So statistically speaking, you're more likely to get into USC film than you are Harvard Law. So I, against all odds, they tell me I'm never gonna get in. I lock myself in a room for two years, do nothing but study so that I can get in as a junior. I get in, and now I'm thinking, wow, I've already defied the odds. My first films are good, start getting attention. I get selected as one of only four people selected to do a thesis film. And they give you a phantom budget of like 35K, which back then was insanity. I couldn't have imagined it. And I completely it up. I mean, I mean, just like so bad, I mess up in every conceivable way you can mess up. And it, it like broke some part of me. How and public of a loss was it? Massive. So first of all, you go from being one of your entire class to being one of only four in your class to do the film. So all eyes are already on you to see what you're gonna do. And then people started making like what we would now call memes, but didn't have that word back then, but they were making like little loops yeah. of my film to make fun of it. Uh, which was devastating. And then I screened it in front of family and friends mm -hmm. and, and it was just heartbroken because it was so obviously bad. What, what role did, you know, that moment where you're sitting in your dorm room and you're talking to your mom with the phone hanging down and your friend comes in and sits right next to you, what does that do? Say that doesn't happen. Does it make any kind of an impact on your next move? You know, I've thought about that a lot and I do wonder sometimes what my life would have been if I had had just enough talent to do well on that film as well 
and then the realization comes later in a professional setting, could that have knocked me off course? It's very possible. But what ends up happening is I have that moment, I'm you know, laying in the middle of campus on a payphone to my mom saying like, I don't have talent. And having this realization of I'm actually not good. And that was really hard when you think that you're either born with it or you're not. So I go and I graduate and I start teaching and in teaching, I begin to realize two things. One, I'm sliding towards depression. And two, that I can help these students make their films better. And if I can help them make their films better, why can't I make my own better? How old are you at this time? 22, 23. Oh, 22, 23 you're teaching. Yeah. And what school is this? Uh, New York Film Academy in so, Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, got it. And so uh, uh, this is, are you going at school as well at that time or you're done with school? No, I was done. Done with school. Yeah. So was it like a, a something you wanted to do? Or was you just transitional next move? Well, so I did a lot of trans transitional jobs, and teaching was definitely one of them. But I was selling video games. I sold insurance door to door. Like I, I was just trying to do anything to make ends meet. Um, I was super broke, living in an apartment with no furniture. I mean, it was just like a whole period in my life, uh, and I could not see a path to success. It wasn't like there was that sense of being lost and hopeless because you don't know how to break out of it. There was no internet, so it's like, I, I literally have no idea how to get out of this. What year is this? This would have been 2000, 2000, yeah, 99, 2000. Was the worst of it. All right before I met my wife, who really helped me turn things how around. How did that change? So, one, by this point I start reading about things we would now call the growth mindset. So I'm knee deep in Tony Robbins, I'm um, in selling um, insurance door to door. How'd you get introduced to that? Was it through selling insurance? Selling insurance? Insurance, uh, who oh. were you with on the insurance side? What company? It was prepaid legal. Oh, really? Yeah, so you yeah. were prepaid legal? Yeah, so legal insurance. Got it. So prepaid um, legal uh, was sold, I think, a few years ago for 651. It's now a different company name, right? Now it's, I think it's called Legal Shield or something like that. Yeah. So you're selling uh, prepaid legal. Is that what introduced you to a little bit of Tony Robbins? It's possible. I actually don't remember. Okay. But I started being around people that were trying to get better. And you go to like sales conferences yeah. and they're teaching you how to get better. And it's like all planting this little seed in my mind about maybe self-improvement is possible. Maybe who you are today isn't as important as who you could become. Yep. And so that like ends up being powerful. But like it wasn't like I had some a big epiphany. It yeah. was just like, huh, this is interesting. Then I'm teaching and I'm thinking, well, I can make their films better. Why can't I make mine better? Mm -hmm. uh, meet my wife and my wife just takes to that mentality right from the jump, but then starts pointing out some holes in my game, shall we say, to put it politely. How soon? Um, not right at first, but when I went and asked for her father's blessing to marry her, he said no. And uh, that, that was eye-opening, because his story is crazy. So he was born in a small village in Cyprus, which is a tiny Greek island, and he clawed his way to the top of one of the largest shipping companies in the world. I mean, just an extraordinary story. And I went to the village that he grew up in, and you think, how, how did you, you go, go with him? That? No, I went with Lisa, my wife, Got it. but not with him. But I met his parents. That was surreal. That really brought did it home. Did that make sense why he is the way he is? Or no, no? It, it made it harder to understand. Wow, it was why like, is that? Because they were, like, to give you an idea, his mom, he bought her a washing machine, and she was like, get this thing out of my house. Like, she couldn't fathom technological advancement. Like, she knew her yeah. ways. That was it. Mm. Like, she grew up in the mountains. She married someone she'd known since she was, like, five years old. It was like, just like her life was on, on rails, and that was that. Like, what are you doing with this newfangled stuff? And so they sent him to the mountains to study, and he like really just takes to it and is one of those guys that just had like enough hustler mentality in him that he was always looking for an opportunity 
made good on opportunities, nothing was ever below him, just like worked his ass off. And what he ends up achieving is, is really, really extraordinary. And so he's looking at me, this broke, undereducated kid, and he says, how do you plan to take care of my daughter? And I was like, sir, I know what you see, but I'm telling you right now, I'm the most ambitious person you've ever met. And he gives me the look that I would give to somebody that mm. says the same shit. And I'd be like, yeah. whatever. Right. Like, ambition is bullshit unless you have drive. And I didn't have drive. And so at the same time those words are coming out of my mouth, I'm laying in bed three to four hours a day every day. And the only thing that gets me out of bed is the shame of my girlfriend, now wife, is working. I'm not. And she comes home for lunch. And my only responsibility in the world at that time is to make her a sandwich before she gets home. And so the fact that like only shame would get me out of bed in time to do it, it was just crazy. It was like Are such, you teaching that this summer? No, no, no. no. So okay. this is like, I was only teaching in the summer. So it's oh, like this it. really weird got cadence it. of yep. like things are sort of happening at the same time. And you're kind of doing sales on the side. Yes, but that was before I met okay, her. So you're not doing sales anymore? Not at this point. Got it. So it was, um, yeah, it was a hard time. And so realizing that I have ambition but not drive and that I need to get some drive if I'm going to pull this off. And my wife was very encouraging, but at the same time, my wife didn't pull punches. And she's like, what the fuck? Like, you need to do your hair. You need to actually wear nice clothes because I would just bum around in sweatpants and wouldn't do my hair. And, and I mean, look, I cannot say enough that my wife was always loving and encouraging and always felt like she shared that vision of who I could become. Yeah. But it was like, it wasn't enough for her that I was daydreaming about it. I had to be doing something to go get it. And so that, that was good, like to have somebody that really held me to a standard respect to my wife. Uh, so yeah, so that like realizing that and realizing that I didn't want to be ashamed of myself anymore. I didn't want to be depressed. I wanted to do something extraordinary, but that was going to demand a high price. And I looked at myself and was just like, yeah, I'm willing to pay that price. What, 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 what did he say when he said, I'll get you a house right next door to live with us. I'm going to give it to my dog. <laughs> I don't understand. You, you what was his well, point? Like, is he trying to like... Uh, keep her close? Yes. What's he like? Don't get married yet, hang tight. A thousand percent. Why? So, um, one, I just want to acknowledge that you've done your homework. Very, you very You've got impressive. a good story. Thank you. So, yeah. So when I say to my father-in-law, hey, I want to marry your daughter, he said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't do that. Um, how are you going to take care of her? How about this? Instead of you guys get married, I'll give you the house. He owned the house next door to his. He said, that was always meant to be my daughter, so you guys can have it move in, stay there. Because he, in his mind, he's thinking, oh, in 18 months, done. these guys are done. Right. Keep her close. I don't want her going to America. Then it's in, because this is all happening in London. I lived in London for a year. So he's like, got to keep my daughter here. Do not want her going to America with this loser. Like, can't have it. But if I push back against this kid, she's just going to go from harder. Mm. So he's smart. He smart, knows what's brilliant. up. So he's like, hey, take the house. He doesn't say you can sleep with her, but that's basically the read between the lines. Like, be in a relationship, be with her, live with her. I don't care about that, but don't marry her. Don't take her to America. And so, yeah, it was, it was awesome. And the thing is, he was always very welcoming to me, partly because he's smart and he knows if he pushes me away, then it's all over, and partly because he's a freakishly kind man. So, and he ends up becoming an incredible mentor. I mean, just like a lot of amazing things came out of that relationship, but the first one was just calling bullshit on where I was in life and not letting me hide behind ambition. So I had a chance to meet your wife. I mean, obviously, her energy is unbelievable. She can light up a room when she walks yes. in. She's got that kind of an energy. And, uh, you know, sometimes this question is asked, but I'm thinking what, you're, what you'll say to this is, say you guys don't meet, say you guys don't get married, say that doesn't happen. How much of a role did she play? I know you're talking about honesty, all that stuff. And a lot of times you read, you'll say, 
you know, uh, 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 Michelle, you know, they'll say, Michelle Obama is so lucky to have been married to a president. And, you know, that quote, she comes back and says, well, anybody I would have married would have become a president. <laughs> How much do you believe in that? Yeah, I love that. So I'm a, I'm just a huge believer in love and partnerships and all of that. So I like that my story is intertwined with my wife, who is an extraordinary human. And I for sure would not be who I am today if it wasn't for her. Now, would I have figured it out other ways? Because I don't think you can ever let somebody own your story. I think I'll take credit for the things that I did. My wife could never make me take action. She couldn't be there for me when I have to push harder or see something through. But did I have a partner that when I was broken and on my knees, that she got down with sympathy, put an arm around my shoulder and told me everything was gonna be okay? No, I didn't have that. What I had was someone who picked me back up, brushed me off, reminded me of where I was going and who I could become and told me that she would do anything in her power to help me become that person. Ultimately, I had to do the work, but like, you think you want sympathy when you're down, but what you want is compassion, you want love, you want encouragement, you yeah. want somebody who believes in you when you don't believe in you. And she was, I have the chills on my face right now. She believed in me at times when I was like, I don't know if I can do wow. this. Wow, yeah, that's powerful. And I like how you said that just the being a cheerleader is not enough. You gotta be more than just a cheerleader. Cheerleader is, hey, go get him, you're gonna be great, I believe in you, that doesn't lead into results. You gotta also identify what things you need to improve it. So how does this transition into you copywriting and maybe you gotta be thinking bigger with you know, your partners that you had, how, how does that transition into that? So my wife and I had tried to start our first business. Well, we did start our first business and it made money, but uh, it made very little money. It was a photography business. And that gave me that entrepreneurial drive. Like I wanted to do it. I had a little tinge of it when I was selling for prepaid legal um, and then really felt it when I was doing the photography. But I just looked at the dollars and I'm like, this never goes anywhere. I can never make enough money. I didn't have the words to explain it, but it was because I was time for money. And you can't break the wealth equation if you're dealing in time for money. So I was like, all right, I want something more, but I don't know what that more is. And then two of my, um, two of the people that came through and saw me speaking about filmmaking uh, were these two entrepreneurs. And they were the two things I'd always promised myself as a kid that I would have is that one day I would have six pack abs and one day I would be rich. Those were my I two promises. That. Yeah. And that really guided my life in like a very sincere and intense way for a long time. And they come across my path. Not only are they wildly successful in business, but they're yoked. And I was like, whoa. So these guys are like, yo, we're gonna work together someday. And people would tell me that all the time. And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And not really believed it. And they called and said, look, we're starting this new company and why don't you come be a copywriter? We settle for employees, but we're always looking for partners. And you can have any role in this company that you want. You just have to become the right person for that role. And um, That's really their pitch. Yeah, and I saw them make that pitch to Everybody. dozens of people. Wow. Dozens, and nobody did anything with it. And I was like, what the fuck? Do people not see like what they're offering? And everyone was telling me, they're full of shit, dude. Like, can you not see? Like, these guys are just trying to take advantage of you. And I thought, even if they are, like what do I have to lose exactly? Like mm -hmm. as long as my payroll checks are clearing and they're not doing yeah. anything unethical, I don't quite understand the risk. So everyone was like freaking out, telling me that I shouldn't do it. And I was just like, oh wow, this seems too, like it's too self-evident to me that I could always go back to teaching and that I might as well try this and if it sucks, then I'll go back. So I did it, tried it. They were amazing and true to their word, they were like, you can become anything you want. Now here's the bad news. 
you're not yet the person you need to be. And they were just cold-hearted about it, just like real fucking direct. Like, you suck at this, only an idiot would do that. Like, they were so intense. What, what's the age difference gap between uh, you and them? What are they, five years older than me? Both of them. Yeah. So yeah. it was it was direct, it was intense, it was not for the faint of heart or from for the, the delicate beginning. from the jump. And for me, it was intoxicating, and I fell for it. And I was head over heels. Like, it was so awesome. And it was like, my whole life, if anybody had been like that to me, I would have shut down because I didn't believe I could get better. Mm. But by the time I meet them, I now believe I can get better. So uh, now I believe I can get better. I'm working out in the gym. So I see this like, whoa, you can change your body. I've lost all this weight. Like, wow. it's this crazy transformation. So they come in and they're like, dude, the little better you think you can get is the tip of an iceberg. You can radically transform your life. And this is the playground to do it and you can get rich. And they said, look, you're coming to the world with your hand out right now. And if you want to control the art, you have to control the resources. So I was like, this is amazing. And so I hear him make that pitch all day, every day to a bunch of people. Nobody does anything with it. I start as the kid in the server room. Nobody knew who I was. Everyone else in our office had floor to ceiling glass windows that looked at the Pacific Ocean. I was the only one that didn't. I was in a room with no real desk. I just sat at one of the servers and no one knew, they didn't even introduce me around. Mm. So people were just like, who's the kid? And I was just like, I suck right now. So I have to get better. I've got to keep my head down and work my ass off and get good. And I took that so seriously. Like when I moved to, cause at first I lived quite far from them. And so I decided I was gonna move closer and I timed the locations. So I told my wife she could pick anywhere that I could get to their place in seven minutes or less. And so we would go look at an apartment and then I would time it to their houses and see if I could get there fast enough. And uh, so as long as houses, could, there's no headquarters. I mean, is this at the time? At the time, that was less relevant to me than being able to. If they needed me at 2 a.m., could I show up on a you know in a moment's notice? Now Are they you happen already to live at 10 percent, or you're not 10 percent? No, yet. Jesus, that I was hasn't just happened yet. Just employee. Okay, got it. This is how I get to 10 percent, and that's why I, like I. When people say like, oh, I don't want to intern, or I want to make sure I'm getting paid right. when I'm worth, all that stuff, it's like. If you're focused in the beginning of your career with monetizing your current skill set, you will never get where you want to go because money only spends once unless you're really good at investing, which most young people are not. Whereas skills monetize again and again and mm, again and again. Great point. That's so, so powerful. Can I you was, say that one more time? Yeah. Money only monetizes once or you can only spend it once, but your skills can be monetized over and over and over. So I just thought, wait a second, what I need is skills. These guys have skills. I'm watching them do this. They're giving me a seat at the table. Such as what? Can you kind of... They would let me on phone calls. Why? Why the fuck let me on these phone calls? Uh, it was like, it doesn't make sense. I have zero to contribute. And I remember at the beginning, the... Oh, Patrick, the only words, and I don't know if people think I'm exaggerating when I say this, the only words that I would say on this conference call would be goodbye. I would wait the entire call. Here it comes. I'm finally going to get my chance to speak. And I'm not even sure why it meant something to me, but to actually be able to utter syllables on, on like this official business call was so important to me. And so I'd wait and I'm like, oh, we're wrapping up. I can tell it's happening. Here it goes. Goodbye. That was it. But I took notes. I paid attention. I watched how they were. I listened to how they did business. I watched how they negotiated, what they pushed on, what they didn't, what the ethos was, all of it. And I just drank it in. And then I thought, okay, wait a second. I can be the energy of this stuff. I may not be able to think of the ideas yet, I don't understand business, but I can be the energy. So if somebody says, hey, by Thursday, we need to have this, I've got that written down. Hey guys, on Tuesday, remember, we gotta have that thing on Thursday. Does anybody need help? Anybody need anything? Because I will do whatever you want me to do. 
And so people would give me stuff and I would do it. And as long as it was just like blunt force trauma and I didn't have to like have some high level business knowledge, mm -hmm. I could get it done. Mm -hmm. And I would do it with bells on. They once gave me a list, it was like 750,000 keywords and I had to comb through it in an Excel spreadsheet and say either yes or no. That took days and days and days of mind numbing yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. What, what do you mean 750,000 Because this words. was back in like, so we had um, words that did we want to advertise on. Do we want to advertise on these keywords? Like, so you would buy a list of like powerful keywords on Google and this is all CPC stuff. Got so do we want to show up on these keywords, yes or no? Like here's our business, you know what we're doing, what keywords would we want to show up on? And so I'd have to go and clean the list. There's no way, no AI to comb through it for us. So uh, I would do that. So anything like that where I could, I just add value, add value, add value. And everyone starts gravitating towards the person who's always upbeat, great energy, no and it. never says no, and is always asking how they can help. It, it, it is a formula that will win for all time. And so that was it. And I just threw that, that intensity at it because every day I was like, I'm here to get rich. I'm here to get rich. And when I get rich, I'm going to go build my studio. I'm going to get rich, 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 rich. And that was all I thought about. I obsessed over it. Now that would end up being my almost downfall, but that was my obsession. And so... What ahead. happens next after that? So for eight and a half years, I'm doing that. I am working seven days a week, ignoring my wife. At about the six and a half year mark, my wife pulls me aside and says, you're now damaging our marriage and I'm not willing to continue like this. So I was like, all right, something's got to give. And that forced me to really look and say, I'm profoundly unhappy and showing up every day chasing money just isn't actually who I am. And I need to do something that makes me feel alive in the moment. So it, it ends up being a cool part of my story, but what I want people to know is when the following thing happened, I was a wash in shame. And so there I was, the guy going hard. By this point, I've worked my way up now. I'm the chief marketing officer of the company. I own 10% of it, um, all just through sweat equity. They made good on their promise. And I was so broken inside and so unhappy that I was like, I have to leave. I need to go back to filmmaking. I need to do something that in and, in and of itself, like I will love and be passionate about. And what I realized was the struggle is guaranteed. The success is not. Now at that time I was a multimillionaire on paper, but as you well know, being rich on paper is very different than having money in your bank account. No doubt about it. So I was rich on paper. I did not feel rich. And so I was like, what am I doing all of this for? So, my wife and I talk and I'm like, look, I know I promised I would make you rich and I swear to God I will one day, but I'm gonna have to take a step backwards first because I can't just muscle through like this. I'm, I'm just losing so many years of my life. I, I need to do something that if I'm gonna fail, at least I'm gonna fail loving what I'm doing. She was totally behind me. She said what are now famous words in our marriage. She said, I bet on you. I was like, that means a lot. So I go in and I quit. And I said, look, here's your equity back. I'm not gonna cross the finish line, so I don't think I should get anything for this. So, you know, take it and, and do your thing. And I'm gonna go to Greece. We were gonna move to Greece and I'm gonna write. And that's that. And they said, look, we could do this without you, but we don't want to. And so what would it take for us to keep working together? And I laid out a plan of, if whatever I'm gonna be doing next, it's gotta be around value creation. It's gotta be around passion. It's got to be something that we would love every day, even if we were failing. I want to build community. I want to be myself. And I said, look, this thing that we now call social media, it wasn't called that back then, but social media, I think it's going to change everything. What year is that? This is 20, 2009. Okay. So I'm like, I think this is going to change everything, going to change the way that people do business. And actually, this probably was a little bit earlier than that. 
Um, so the next company, I want to be transparent. I want our real personality, personalities to shine through. I want people to see, like, we actually want good things for them. Yeah. And so that, for three very different reasons, became the core of what we wanted to do. And so we founded Quest Nutrition. Everyone told us we were crazy, that we were leaving technology, like the place where people actually no get doubt. rich, and going into food, the place where you're in manufacturing, it's gonna be small margins, you guys are never gonna survive mm -hmm. this. And so everyone thought we were dumb, but our thing was we're never gonna make decisions based on profitability again. We're gonna be making it based on like actually adding value to people's lives, being passionate about what we do every day, and loving our lives. And so we actually made a promise to each of us and we said, you're going to enjoy what you do on a day-to-day -day basis, simple as. And so if it's something weird, like when I started doing Inside Quest, fine. Like even if it's not, like we don't see the immediate ROI in the business, if you love it and that's a part of what's making you a complete and full human being, then let's do it. And so we got into really crazy stuff, but ended up being amazing. Um, because we made that promise to each other. So that was how all of that began, and then we just really lived up to it, about value creation, about not just trying to sell people on something, about building a real community to uplift people, and it just so happened that we had the right product at the right time, marketed in a totally new way. Because of my background in film, we were creating all of our own content in-house. We built an entire studio inside the company. We were shooting everything long before that was like a thing. It was like we were doing that, and everyone was like, this is crazy but then we grow by 57,000% in our insane. first three years That's alone nuts. in manufacturing. That's which nuts. Is Let me tell you, that is absolutely nuts what you guys did. In a, you know Blue Ocean Strategy. Yeah. So a lot of time when you look at Blue Ocean Strategy, you say, wait a minute, who doesn't have a bar? Everybody's got a bar. You know, this bar, that bar, and you know all of them, when you chew on them, they either taste terrible, uh, uh, a high protein, or they stick to your teeth. You know which ones I'm talking <laughs> about? Like, you got to like really have jaw muscles to separate them. And then you guys come out and you do what you do with it, you know. But but the, the questions I want to I want to ask you is: all this is taking place inside Quest. When did you start creating content with Inside Quest? What year was that? Inside Quest is a lot later in the journey, so that was probably 2014, okay. 2015. So then when did you go Impact Theory? So Impact Theory came in 2016. So we did a year and a half of Inside Quest. And then I spun it out as a standalone company for Impact Theory in 2016. Oh, so you, there is not two YouTube channels, Inside Quest, Impact no, Theory. No, no. In, Inside Quest became Correct. Impact. Like we changed it from Patrick Bay David to Value Tim, and You went from Inside Quest to I got it. And then you said, hey, I'm going to run this. And you guys go out there and do what you're uh, doing. And then you uh, stepped away. So uh, the questions I got that I really wanted to get into is personality-wise. You know, uh, as, I, as I listen to a lot of the stuff you say, you know, as a kid, my son, my son says, I said, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be Peter Parker. Okay, awesome. You know, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be this, I want to be that. You cannot help yourself but talk about Matrix, right? And you can't help yourself but talk about Star Wars. And, and when you and I spoke at your house, you're like, yeah, I'm, you know, we're competing against, we're going to build a media company, go against Walt Disney and all this other stuff. And, you know, we're, we're already creating uh, comic books and stories and we're going to do it. Oh, your mind is already going there. And then when I look at your partner, Ron Pena, he says, well, you, when you ask him, what was a special event in March of 1984? Oh, I went into martial arts. Why? Because I wanted to be a ninja. But then also he wanted to be Batman. Like he's got this one picture doing the splits. He looks like Batman and Jean-Claude Van Damme combined. And then you got uh, your partner, Mike Osborne, who is the Iowa, you know, the whole uh, farm boy, all that stuff that he has. Did you guys all kind of get along where secretly is like, listen, man, I want to be Batman. I want to be this and I want to be that. 
Like, did it almost became okay to talk this crazy language that to the world is like, you guys are corny and crazy, you're <laughs> full of it. Like, was there that level of connection? Because that, that's almost what it seems like when I watch you guys. Yeah, I, I won't throw Mike under the bus. He, that was definitely not his uh, MO. He was not into that stuff. But yeah, one of the first things Ron and I bonded over was comics and our love of Batman. So my dog was actually named Batman when I met Ron. You're um, serious. Yeah. And I'd been collecting comics since I was 16. I and so, and the part of the reason that people gravitate towards Batman is because he doesn't have superpowers, right? So, um, and the, the fascinating thing about the comic industry is if you were actually in it, it grew with the readers. So they became very adult. Like if you read Batman now, unless you're reading like one of the ones aimed at kids, it's dark shit, man. Like they're really dealing with like loss and obsession and growth and like how much you're capable of and how much you have to hold yourself accountable. It, like Batman is, is for growth mindset of people is the story. And you still so, read? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, of you still course. read? Like how often? I try to read. My fantasy would be to read every day. I try to read every week. That's crazy. But like even now, in my bag, I was reading on the plane, I'm reading a, a story called I Am a Hero. Um, but it's very adult, it's a, a zombie apocalypse, but I mean, whatever. I'm a baseball card guy. Now, do you have any original, like Superman 1? You, you can't afford um, any of this stuff. I have like the... What, what do you have? What are special comic books you got? I have some big stuff from the 90s. Okay, so, But it. the problem was that in the 90s, so much of it was made. There was this huge speculation boom. So it's like you may have mm. something that's like a big cultural moment, but it's one of a million. That's right. Whereas now, like, there really is rare stuff where there may have only been 2,500 printed, period. You have no desire to own that kind of stuff. Doesn't Collecting it isn't, isn't the, the juice. Got it. It's the, the story. Yeah, I really believe that the way that humans assimilate truly disruptive information is through narrative. And so part of the way that I've changed my life, that I've opened my mind to things like a growth mindset mm -hmm. is through, like The Matrix, it's not a mistake that The Matrix came out the year that I was going through this like, am I able to improve myself or not? The movie comes out, ends up becoming the dominant metaphor of my life. I'd love to say that it was a lightning rod moment when I saw it, my life has changed forever. It wasn't like that, but it planted a seed that I just kept coming back to. Oh man, it's like Neo in The Matrix, oh man. Like, yeah, like, like Morpheus said. You take the blue pill, the story ends, you wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Or, like Yoda in Star Wars, and you just start piecing together like these fascinating belief systems. Because a lot of times, the wisest characters in films are often taken from, like Yoda sounds exactly like Lao Tzu from <laughs> the Tao Te Ching. Yep. So it's like, Basically, you've got George Lucas, who's very familiar with Eastern philosophy, talking Eastern philosophy through this little puppet, but especially if you hear it when you're young, man, like your mind is really okay. open to it. Yeah. So because of Star Wars, I ended up becoming obsessed with the Tao Te Ching, and then because of that, that ultimately was my doorway to a growth mindset, and then Neo and all of that. So the connection was there with you and Ron was with this area? Come. Oh yeah, growth mindset for sure, and then comics and Batman and an obsession over that rapid style storytelling where you can explore ideas very, very quickly. I mean, he says he wanted to be Batman. Like very quick. Would he still say that? I don't know if he'd still say it, but he was sincere. Like, obviously that, the ethos of Batman, so not necessarily as a caped crusader. He talks like Batman, by the way. He yes. sits like this, very, you know, he's got the jaw, he talks like a very proper guy, but uh, uh, in your teens, what movie impacted your life the most? Uh, give, me, give me each decade, what would have been? 
Well, Star Wars would have been, when I was young, would have been the main driver. Um, then the next one that really had a big influence on me as, as a person would have been um, The Matrix. So I went from, okay, Star Wars is like my big thing, then The Matrix, and now it's like, The Matrix is still probably the biggest, but you know, there've been a lot of films that have shown me something like Ordinary People, I don't know if you've ever seen that, but like seeing how people trap themselves in um, a poor mindset, like that movie to me was so heartbreaking because the mom just cannot get out of her own way. Um, so there've been a lot of movies that have like given me some little piece, but even like a movie like Kramer versus Kramer or Goonies, um, Goonies. Karate Kid. Oh my God, I should have led with that. Karate Kid was wildly influential in terms of again getting picked on, not liking the way people are treating you, meeting somebody who can mentor you that gives you some yeah. you know wise advice, but then you actually have to do it. And then I actually had a wax on wax off moment in my life. This is crazy. So for those that haven't seen the movie, Mr. Miyagi's training Daniel and Daniel's doing what ends up feeling to Daniel like housework, you know, waxing cars, painting fences, and he's like, why am I doing all this? And Mr. Miyagi finally reveals to him that what he's been training are the motions for some amazing defenses. Show me wax on, wax off. Show me pin defense. And in my own life, my dad always made me work. And so through the summers, I would always have summer jobs from the time I was 12. And I worked in a door factory, paint factory, paint store, paint warehouse. I mean, just like the worst jobs you can imagine for a young teenager. And my dad always said, like, this is gonna pay off one day. And I thought, yeah, 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 here we go. And so imagine we're at Quest and we've ordered all this equipment. And the equipment shows up in a big um, tractor trailer. And they back up, we open the door, and there's this massive equipment. And we realize, how the hell are we supposed to get this off the truck? We don't have a forklift, and even if we did, no one has, knows how to drive it. Mm. And I was like, actually guys, our neighbor has a forklift, and I'm a certified forklift driver. And everyone turns to me and they're like, what? Why are you a certified forklift driver? What and I was like, my dad always made me work in these stupid places, and he told me that one day it would pay off. So on camera, Ron starts filming, get and I turn the camera, as I'm on the forklift and I'm raising it up and I'm like, Dad, wax on, wax off. Wow. It's fucking crazy. What a story. So, but the, the fascinating thing to me is yeah. that the movie gave me the language and the framework to understand it, to assimilate that motion or that moment and now be able to give it to somebody else. But you need that package. Yeah. Like you need the narrative. You need that moment, something that hit you on an emotional level for you to make sense of it. So that's the problem. Like I could have had that same experience and not put two and two together. It doesn't become part of my ideology. I'm not able to tell somebody else. I'm not even necessarily able to use it again in my own life because I have to relearn it every time. But a film, a story, it gives you that construct so you can hold the notion in your head. That's amazing, that story you got there. By the way, your partners, three of you guys together, uh, obviously having a business partner is difficult by itself. But you're talking three of you. So what I'd be, and by the way, were you guys all evenly split? What, I, I read a few plays, you guys were 33, 33. Was anybody 34? Did you guys give one no, to charity? No, 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 no. How'd you guys do the split? Was it literally split, split amongst everybody? Okay, Three. you were CMO, were yeah. you CMO? I, I was president, but I oversaw marketing and sales. 
Okay, so who was COO? Would you say Mike is COO? Mike was COO. Like we we kind of played with the titles because Mike for sure is an operations guy, and I'm for sure not. I'm the people person, but we just wanted to make sure that everybody had a title that made sense for equal partnership. It so, almost yeah. looked like you guys didn't want to give any titles. Is that a fair assessment? It, we didn't for okay. years. Okay, so you guys have beef. Okay, you have issue. For instance, you're gonna have stuff that happens, right? Was there ever, so from observation, everybody is in shape, everybody's disciplined, so did you guys ever have a conversation about pulling your weight? We never had to, because, okay, that's, that's, that's the yeah, part. like that, that was one thing that you, we would never need the conversation, you're that's not so pulling powerful. your weight, but we would definitely have conversations, you're wrong, you're going in the wrong sure. direction, yeah. or whatever, but yeah, no, with those two guys, and, and I'll definitely throw myself in the mix, like, not working hard enough. Did it ever get super, super heated to the point where this is not going to work out? It was definitely one time where it got so heated, I was like, are we actually about to throw punches? But that was rare enough that we could still be functional. But it was, look, it was high intensity. You definitely have guys that aren't there to play around. But at the end of the day, there was so much respect. Yeah. So much respect and, and a real desire to win. And when you've got winners on your team, the last thing you want to do is let, like, uh, any sort of pettiness get in the way. So we would actually have conversations about our emotions, like, hey, when you did that, it made me feel this way. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. All, all of you? Yeah. Yeah, and the three of us. That, did you guys have a code together? Like, did you guys have something like a code of honor? Did yeah, you have any I mean, kind of not, a, a not stated unspoken. or anything like that, but yeah. Okay. It was like, look, we're going to be die hard. We're going to do anything within our code of ethics to make this company successful. We're going to also support each other. We're going to look for ways to help each other shine. We're not going to like backstab. Like we were so cognizant yeah. that internecine battles are ultimately the thing that bring you down. We were very cognizant that pairing up is a problem. So if two of us are really close, because I mean, we were together for 14 years. So over that time, it's like inevitably, oh, one time you're feeling close to one person, the other you're feeling closer to the other person. So it's like you, you have to talk openly and say things like like, hey, remember, coupling is one of the most dangerous things that we could face in a triumvirate, so we have to be very careful not to let that happen, making sure that we're talking about emotions, that if something upset you, that you put it out on the table, that you talk about it, and that we make sure that we're very open and honest and direct. Um, and I'll say that it became hard for other people because we were so direct with each other and so comfortable in that directness that if you then were direct like that with somebody else, in a way that you loved because it was so clear, people felt like you were being like cold or whatever. Like yeah, just to, to give you an idea, if we wanted one of the other people to come to us, efficiency was one of our highest values. So you would just get a text that would say, come. And it wasn't, hey, can you please come to the office, whatever, it was, you would just get a text, come. And so whoever sent it, that meant go to their office. But you would send the same text, like you didn't think about it. But we had that kind of just ultra direct, everything is efficient. Um, now, but they yeah. had known each other since 1989. You, you yeah. came in the picture early, right? Because they went to Creighton I University. I came in the picture late. Right. No, I'm sorry. Yeah. You came in the picture late. My apologies. Yeah, I meant to say late. So if you had to do it again, or I guess this is the question, because a lot of people ask and say partnership, partnership, partnership. Do you see a benefit more in three than two? Because no matter when there's a two, one unites, or do you see benefit in two over three, or solo? Ooh, I, don't, I don't think there's any way to answer that question in the generic, so let me walk through the advantages and disadvantages of each. So as a solopreneur, you will have the most fun, but I think your likelihood of going out of business is the highest because you don't have anybody checking you. So because it is very hard, I know because I try every single day, it is very hard to get your employees to challenge you, 
especially openly. So that means you're not getting all the good ideas. And there's no universe in which you have all the good ideas. I don't care how smart mm -hmm. you are. So when there's no one who's your equal, it, it gets really hard to make sure that you have total clarity and that when you're acting in a way that does not behoove the company, that somebody feels completely comfortable saying, that's not working. And when you don't have that, that's dangerous. But like having a vision and just being able to execute and not have to convince people is fun. So, and if you're right, then hey, it's great. Um, I think that's probably also where the it's lonely at the top phrase comes mm -hmm. from. Now, because I've never been alone at the top, for me, like that, there's no ring of truth to that. So I've always had partners. Now, when I had three partners, it was really complicated and trying to make sure that you're both doing what's right for the company and doing something that makes everybody feel good. And then if you have different, um, like parents that are of different religions, on those areas where you have a, a collision of values, that's problematic. Because your likelihood of convincing somebody to change their mind is good. Your likelihood of convincing to change someone's values is virtually zero. Like it is so deeply ingrained in who they are, they mistake it for oh, the yeah. truth of the world. Right. So it's like, if, I don't mean it in a religious context, but when you start thinking about religious values, you get how entrenched people become. So take two parents that have different religions and they want to raise their kid. To them, the stakes are high. The stakes may be this child will go to hell if they're not raised in the way that I want. You have two people thinking the same thing. So you can definitely run into that in business where you get the like, if we do what you're saying, we're going to lose the business. And they're thinking, if we do what you say, we're going to lose the business. Right. Now you have a collision of values. That's hard. And so navigating your way through that is, is very, very difficult. But when you have three people that hold each other in very high esteem, that have an insane degree of trust, that have been in the trenches for a long time, you've seen them at their most vulnerable and they still show up, at you, show up for you. Like when you have that kind of history, then it's really extraordinary. But if you don't have that history, so finding a partner that you're gonna make an equal partner right from the jump is, mm -hmm. is tough. Now, a partnership of two, you can get into a deadlock. And so at least when there's three, there's a third person to be like, yo, I'm with this person on this. Good point. And so there's always somebody to break the tie. It's, there's never like, well, how about this? We were never in a situation where we were in a three-way deadlock. So it was just far too easy. One person knew, ah, this one's either close enough to what I want anywhere, whatever, I'm just gonna go with that and vote. So somebody was always getting outvoted. Got you just it. knew from time to time you're gonna get outvoted. And this may be the key. As long as everybody actually wants their other two partners to win, it works. So if I always want my way to be right and I don't give a shit about you or your feelings, then it's gonna be bad and sure. you and I are gonna have yep. animosity. But if I actually want you to win, and so I'm like, I think I'm right this time, but I know what it's like to always have someone else's idea win and I never get to see if my idea works. So even though I think I'm right, I'm gonna disagree, but I'm gonna commit to your idea. And that whole disagree but commit was a big thing. Disagree so, but commit. I disagree but commit. Like if when we walk out this door, no one will be able to tell which one of us disagreed because we will be so die hard about it. I love it. that. So that was a real thing. I love that. So now my partnership is with my wife. And when we created the company, Impact Theory, Impact just Theory. the two of you, just the two of no us. one else, nothing. Any plans of bringing anybody in? All of our um, employees have basically phantom shares, so they have ownership. If we sold, they'd get a piece, sure. but they don't vote or anything like that. Okay. Um, so no, I would be shocked if we did that. Won't well, never say never, but I'd be surprised. Um, and when we created it, I told the lawyer, create the ultimate divorce nightmare. And my wife was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You take 51, I'll take 49. Like, there's no need to do that. The lawyers are like, listen to her. You take 51, she takes 49. It just makes things clear, Tom. And I said, no, 50-50, because A, my marriage is my highest priority. The business comes a distant second. 
And two, if I say to her, we're equals in every way, but I don't trust you quite enough to give you equal percentage, even though she agrees, it sends a signal to her that there's, I'm hedging my bets. And the reality is I know what that does to people psychologically. So, and that's the exact reason at Quest that we were 33 and a third each. Just, there's, you don't get any benefit by making it different and you get massive dissent when it's off. So when you guys have a conflict and you're trying to make a decision, was it Tom's the final decision maker? Oh, uh, no, no, no. It was, it was, always, it was always two out of three? Yeah, yeah. So majority? Yeah, yeah. Oh, very simple. So it's very easy. Simple. So hey, two out of three, good, let's go with it. I, I disagree, but we got two out of three. And it, okay. was, it was a lot more interpersonal than that. That was sort of the truth of it, but we really did, like, there was such a deep brotherhood yeah. that that was a real presence in all of this. It was like, you're really talking through it, you're being sensitive to how the other person feels. So you're being strategic, there's no question, like yeah. you have to think of the business, but we were always trying to walk that line of like, I don't wanna hurt you, I don't wanna like piss you off, like it's not about that. I'll push you if I have to, no question. And if you get upset, even though that's not my intent, that's gonna happen from time to time, we all have to be big boys and fuck deal with it. Mm -hmm. And also you have to learn to let go and recenter yourself and not be emotional and so we weren't spiteful. So it's like, it's really fucking complicated and that's why it wouldn't work for everyone, but we did it for a very long time. That's very impressive, I gotta tell you. To 12, three, obviously, to me it seems like Mike's the easiest personality. That's what it seemed like. Uh, you know, simple guy, came up, he didn't see a lot of stuff. He seems like a very simple guy. Well, going back to the whole question about partnership, are you still fully involved or not at all? Like you are not, no board responsibility, like any sort of responsibilities? No, I have massive ownership, but yeah, that's I what I'm have saying. no day-to-day no -day responsibility. Zero. I, I, I just like when I exited the first time and I said, hey, here's your equity back. This time I said, look, I can't expect to know what's right for the company if I'm off running this other company. So I'm going to acknowledge that it doesn't make sense for me to hold a board seat. So I'm gonna give up the board really? seat knowing, when I left I thought it is entirely possible that I never see another dime from this company because they could run it into the ground without me. That's entirely possible. So my so thing was- you still have a lot of paper wealth. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah and yeah. you're okay with not having any- I've made so much real bank account wealth that it, if I never make another dollar, I'll still never have to work again. Interesting. The fact so could you that to me, like at some point, you're so rich, the only thing that matters is time. And all of this, the whole journey was, I wanted to be a filmmaker, and I only got in business to get rich so I could go make movies. So it didn't make sense to me. I, and I stayed for like two years after we, we had a liquidation event. And I was like, I never have to work again. I never have to do anything I don't want. I could start making movies today. Multi eight-figure check type of a deal. Yes. Okay, good. So are you uh, 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 from the mindset of Enzo and Walt Disney where they say, you know, we don't make movies to make money or we don't make cars to make money. We uh, uh, make money to race cars or we make money to make, is that kind of your mindset as well? Sort of, if you'll swap that out for I'm making, I'm telling stories is the truest way to say it, as a way to pull people out of the matrix by giving them an empowering mindset. Because I, I really believe the only way to reach the masses yeah. is on an emotional level. I'm not good at music, so that leaves film and television, essentially. <laughs> That's great. So um, uh, y when you and I were speaking, I asked you a question about kids. Mm. And we had an interesting conversation about kids. And uh, uh, I, I have a lot of respect on how you guys came with your decision. And by the way, I actually recommend the way you made your decision to some people. Because I think some people make the decision based on what everybody else is doing. Mm. 
you guys didn't, you know? So you told me that at one point you and your wife said, we don't want to have kids and we're totally okay with that. How did you process that together? So when we met, we both just assumed we were going to have kids. Um, that seemed pretty obvious to me. I really enjoy that kind of relationship. Um, being a mentor is something that's you know pretty powerful, and to do it with your own child seems right. pretty extraordinary. I was a big brother for eight and a half years for one kid. So when I say that I got to know him, um, so much so that he was unfortunately being abused at home, and so he was removed from his home, and I was made the guardian to help him into the court system. Like That's how close we were. And so I get it, man. I get how beautiful and powerful that kind of relationship is. But the reality is being a parent to me is about fulfillment. It's about doing something so beautiful that it gives you something that you could not have gotten any other way, which I'll shorthand to fulfillment. And I think it is an extraordinary path to fulfillment for a large swath of the population. But it also changes the course of your life without question. And I was asking people all the time when I really was like, we're sort of getting into the do or die years, I would ask everyone I could, should I have kids or not have kids? And I just wanted to get their wisdom. And this one guy gave me advice. He said, Tom, have kids, don't have kids. It doesn't matter. But whatever you do, do it all the way. And I said to him, that's the best piece of advice I'm ever gonna get. I'm gonna remember that for a very long time. Because the truth of it doesn't really matter. It's just a life choice among many life choices that you can make. And it will be beautiful and wonderful. And if you do it, you'll love it. But you'll hate it if you do it, but then wish that you were over here, you know, doing the entrepreneur thing 110 hours a week. And you know, but when you're there, you're wishing you were at home with your family, which is where you find a lot of really hardcore entrepreneurs. And so I was like, okay, that's not the, the schism that I want. I just want to focus on this thing. And then it just became really easy once Lisa became an entrepreneur and she found fulfillment in that, then we were both completely fulfilled by what we were trying to build. So then it was like, okay, we, that desire to have a child just basically went away. Purely logical. Yeah. Now what if Lisa says five years from now, listen, you have changed my mind. Where, where would you be? It, unless I've changed my mind as Got well, it. the talk would go like it went at the beginning. If that's because this is what I said to her, because I came to that conclusion. This is a very probably, serious conversation a lot of couples have, and I know you guys got a couple uh, show that you do as well, so yes. you know this kind of stuff comes up. Yeah, so I'll give people the magic words. So here's what I said to her when she wanted kids still, and I now knew that I did not. And I said, I would never deny that for you. Like, if that's what you want, then that's what we're going to do. But I want to be really clear about what the division of labor is going to be. So I'm gonna be a good father and I'm going to put the time in that I need to to be a good father, but I'm not going to be taking them to school functions. I'm not gonna be changing diapers. I'm not getting up in the middle of the night. I'll have a nanny do it for you. It's not like I'm expecting you to do it. I'm just letting you know, I won't be doing it. So if you're completely comfortable with that, that I will be finding ways to build efficiency so that only time spent that is quality time, bonding time with a child, that is the only time we'll be spending with them. And all of the hard bullshit and all that is gonna fall on your shoulders, outsource as much as you want, but everything else that you wanna take on, don't get bitter with me because I'm not doing it. So if you're comfortable with that, and we'll lay everything out in like super detail, and I said I'm even happy to draft a contract so that we're not unclear about what roles are, um, then yes, because I could never deny you being a mother if that's what you want. So if she came to me in five years and said that, that would be the, the speech. Uh, concerns future-wise. You see a lot of people right now talking about, well, 
Uh, the biggest concern right now for the future is this. The biggest concern right now for the future is this. Is there anything, not as an individual, you're not a guy that I uh, foresee myself saying, I'm concerned about anything. Like you say, you say, Pat, the way I live is I live in the moment. You know, uh, I literally can die in 15 minutes. Media can hit me. No, literally, I believe that. That's your mindset that you have. But the average person, like, is there anything that you would say, here are the two or three things or one thing that is going to probably impact everybody's life in the next 5, 10, 20 years? Yeah, there's, there's two things. Um, one is AI and robotics are going to disrupt the economy. That, that is just a for sure. And I'll peg that. I'll, I often say five to seven years. It'll happen within 10 years to be sure. Um, at a minimum, it's going to displace 20 million drivers. So I think everyone can get their head around that. But if you've seen some of the agricultural robots that pick weeds and use less fertilizer and all that, like there, there are just things coming that people can't possibly predict. And th that's really going to happen. It's certainly not an accident that that's the theme of the comic book Neon Future that I'm writing. So that I think is big, and I think that people really have to prepare themselves for it. And the way that you prepare yourself for it is the next problem, which is Generations move in cycles, and no generation is better or worse than the other. I just think that the personalities of a generation either suit them to or make them ill-suited to what is happening to their generation. So the generation right now is rebelling against um, the capitalistic, die-hard, go-get-yours, work your ass off, work 110 hours, amass as many resources as you can. So they think that's gross. So they're pushing back on that hard. Now the problem with the pushback is, the way they see it is, we should be taken care of. There are just certain basic inalienable, inalienable human rights that we should have things like universal basic income, that we should have guaranteed outcomes, stuff like that. Okay, I get it emotionally. I get why they want that to be true. The problem is the physics of the world and the physics of culture don't give a shit what you think or want. There's just going to be a reality and you're either suited for that reality or ill-suited. So we're about to hit an inflection point in the generation where with all of their amazing intentions and all the beautiful things that they're trying to bring to the world, they're going to realize that they're trying to put the onus to protect and serve onto exterior things rather than saying, I have an obligation, me. And the example that I always tell people is if a meteorite were to strike my wife and kill her, I wouldn't blame anybody but me. That is entirely my fault. And I can back that up because people are like, Tom, that's so ridiculous. How could a meteorite striking your wife and killing her be your fault? That's dumb luck, divine providence, like fate, whatever you want to call it. But Jesus, man, it's ridiculous to blame yourself. And then I point out, I'm on the board of the X Prize. At the X Prize, there was a prize presented that would allow us to track near-Earth objects better than we are today. I voted it down there are, because I don't think it matters. I don't think that the likelihood is high enough, but it's there. I know that there's an organization right now that already tracks near-Earth objects. I've never sent them a dime of my money. I've never called them to encourage them. I've never sent them an email with ideas, nothing. Now, I know all of this stuff exists, yeah. and I do nothing to stop it from happening. So. The only thing that I can say if my wife were killed by a meteorite is I did nothing to stop it. I could have made a different decision and got a different outcome. I need to focus on that to remind myself I can always make a change. I can always do something different and get a different outcome. So if you come in and you disrupt my industry, my first thought is not the world. What are you doing? This is so terrible and sinister. We have to stop AI or whatever. My first reaction is how do I become more adaptive? And People are putting so much energy into thinking like, oh, I'm frail, I'm weak, I have to be protected, that they become frail and weak, when in reality they are not. My favorite quote on the planet is, Darwin is often misquoted as saying it's the strongest of the species that survive. He did not say that. 
What he actually said was, it's not the strongest of the species that survive, nor the most intelligent, but rather the most adaptive to change. That's how humans became the apex predator. We are the most adaptive species on the planet. You can take us anywhere and we will thrive. And it is that ability to adapt mentally and physically that makes us amazing. But you have to believe you can get better. So it's this freakish irony of you have all this latent potential, but if you don't believe it's there, you can't manifest it. And so the very first thing is people have got to reject this notion that they have to be protected from the outside and putting all their time and energy into that. Be the fucking change you want to see in the world. If you want to see people strong enough to withhold a better weight, then don't worry about trying to fix systems. Just fucking get tough. Watch how people respond to you. Watch how your kids look up to you. Watch how your family members look up to you. Watch how people turn to you and want help. We have an innate desire to get strong. We don't have an innate desire to have something else protect us. All of us. If Two buttons, man. One of them is, you're such a badass, nothing can ever hurt you. You fucking get it. You know how to figure it out. You fight your way out of anything. Or, a magic fairy will follow behind you and just waft things away. The terrifying thing is, this button, the magic fairy, is going to get pressed a fuck of a lot more than this button. But this button, no one dies of suicide with this button. Mm. This button, motherfucking race towards suicide and depression. And if you want to know why we're having a pandemic of that, and I don't want to cheapen it because it's largely microbiome and there's all kinds of health things that are going on, I'm not taking that away. But on the mental side of what's driving a lot of people not believing in that, is we're just culturally reinforcing that like we're stuck, we're trapped, there's nothing we can do, that people don't understand, the fulfillment has to be earned. You can't tell someone to just love themselves. You have to tell them how they earn self-respect. You have to tell them that doing hard shit that you don't want to do and doing it anyway, that's exactly how you gain self-worth. You can't just tell someone to feel worthy. And fuck, man, I want to more than the next person. Like, I, I spend an inordinate amount of my time every week talking to a camera, trying to help people, to touch their lives, for real. Like, my wife and I made so much money, we could have actually bought an island and retired and never worked again. But that's not what I want. Like, I want that fulfillment. I want to do hard shit. I want to touch people's mm. lives. I want to lift them up. I actually want to transform and change them. And so I believe in people and I'm way compassionate. This is not me saying like, oh, kids today, get off my lawn. This is like, I get it. This is the nature of cyclical cycle. Yeah. Like in, in culture, this happens. You rebel against your parents. And since my parents were coming out of the uh, the war and they believed that like the world could be better and the world was better for them like I caught the tail end of that and so I'm so optimistic mm. about shit so when I encountered a growth mindset I was ready to take it in but now we have like a generation that's really pushing back on those notions of just like self-ownership self-authorship of recognizing no one's response no one is responsible for the difficulties in your life but you that's powerful, uh, very powerful. So, so to stay on this, so you're not a fan of the universal basic income of $1,000 a month to any American, no matter what, and adding $2 trillion to, uh, of cost every year. You're definitely against that. Here's the thing, I don't know shit about it. I know, I okay. know the psychology of humans. And if somebody showed me that by doing that, that people in droves would go develop themselves and they would stop asking for a lighter load and they would start working for stronger shoulders, if, if that really is what happened. And it just like, hey, Tom, you, you free up that layer of panic over safety and now people really are empowering themselves. I'd be like, F give them more. Mm. But I have not seen the truth of that in the way that humans are. I find that they get 
terrified that that will go away. They try to hoard more resources and it, it just goes fucking bananas. It's not even that it just people lay around and play Xbox. I don't think they're gonna get enough to lay around and play Xbox. So it just gets into this, how do I get people to give me more? And man, I, I've seen that play out like giving a severance package that you know is crazy generous and then people like are offended by it. You're like, what? It's crazy town. It's no crazy doubt about town. it. I, I know exactly. Two questions uh, before we wrap up. One uh, is you're, you're big on learning a lot of skill sets, right? What would you say has the highest, what skill set has the highest upside, highest return? The, the baseline thing people have to have is emotional resilience. So you have to, and this to me is a skill, you have to learn how to emotionally recalibrate. So when I was the kid in the server room and there was a whole bunch of people farther ahead in their entrepreneurial journey than I, and they all heard the same message about you can be a partner and none of them did anything with it. I started asking, why aren't they doing anything with it? And I realized the answer was I could self-soothe faster than they could. And so, yeah, it hurt when I was told I was an idiot. That really sucked especially hearing it from someone you really respect. But I decided to not spin out of control, not waste three days being hurt by it, but instead to recenter and just ask, are they right? Because if they're right, there's something to learn here. And if they're not right, just move on. And if they are right, learn the lesson. And so I just slowly started collecting it and the lessons. And the image I started thinking was, whenever somebody throws an insult at you, you have two options. You can let it hit you in the head, or you can raise your defenses and deflect it. And your defenses are the psychological immune system. They're real, I'm not making that up. So all of us have this thing that comes to our aid when somebody says something that hurts you, then you're like, oh, well, they're mean anyway, they're a jerk, they're a bully, whatever, mm -hmm. I don't have to take them seriously. And so that makes you feel better and you believe maybe that they're being cosmically punished in some way, being a bully is its own punishment and all that. So, and ah, like that allows mm -hmm. you to relax and they've done studies that show people with the highest level of self-delusion are the happiest. So there really is something to it. But the people with the highest level of self-delusion are usually not the ones that go the farthest because they don't stop to recognize where they really are to own the pain of that. So I thought, okay, instead of raising my defenses, I'm gonna lower my defenses, I'm gonna let that rock hit me in the head because at my feet now is actually a nugget of gold. And I'm gonna pick up that nugget of gold and form it a lesson that the person is throwing at me. And here's the thing to realize, when people really come at you, they're really trying to hurt you, they have sinister intent, they're gonna come at you with something that's true. Nobody comes at you with the stuff that's not real. They're gonna hit you with like the thing that you're the most secure about right. in the world. So even the people with the, the gravest of intent are the ones that are giving you the most powerful gift because you may be blind to it or maybe you didn't want to acknowledge it. But if you can let it hit you as much as it hurts, then bend down, pick it up and learn from it, now you can do something. No that person will become unstoppable. Very, very true. Uh, Tom, how do you process issues? How do you, do you have a system on what you go through? Something happens, something comes up, in your brain, is there a step process you go through? Yes. What is it? Starts with a goal. So what is my goal? Um, well, first it starts with clearing the emotion because probably whatever sure. I was told just had some emotion. I recenter myself. Uh, the thing that I probably repeat to myself the most is you can do anything you set your mind to on a long enough timeline. So I know I can learn anything. So if the thing that hits me is overwhelming because I'm scared, I don't know how to do it, 
you can do anything you set your mind to. So at the end of this thinking through is going to be the question. Are you willing to set your mind to it yeah. or not? Um, and then I identify, okay, what's my goal? Does this move me towards my goal? Yes or no? I think through the process of has somebody done it? Is there already a well-laid path from where I'm at to actually completing mm. this? Which is how I decided that we were going to take on Disney. Because looking at the only studio ever in the history of time to be disciplined enough to only tell one kind of story from a thousand different angles, so much so that they gave birth to Americana, is Disney. No other studio. Everyone else is all over the map. If I say I'm going to go see a Sony movie or a Paramount movie, you don't know anything about it. But if I say I'm going to go see a Disney movie, you already know something. So their name brand means something. So I could see, oh, there's a path from where I'm at to the impact that I want to have. So I throw that out just as a reminder of, of the path that I'm walking more than I have some particular obsession with Disney. Fascinating. And by the way, in your, in your mind, do you see it already, that vision becoming a reality? No question. No question. No question about it. For sure. And look, I have days of where I'm like, how the f*** am I actually yeah. going to do this? But then you come back to, you can learn anything you set your mind to, so just keep marching forward. Yeah, I like, I like what you said once. You said, you know the whole thing about when you get to 75%, you know you're there like, man, it's got to happen. Why isn't it kind of happening already? You know that whole thing where we're about to score a touchdown. Uh, where would you say you are right now? On the, on, the, on the process of doing that, the vision? Uh, it, it's a 70-year plan, so we are, we are in it. our absolute infancy. But I think that we're, you could put me up against just about anybody else, and on the same amount of time, I'd say we're ahead of anybody else. Really? For sure. That confident, Yes. Man. Powerful. Well, Tom, it's been uh, great having you. By the way, if you're watching this right now, you heard so many different things we talked about. Business, partnership, should you have kids, should you not have kids? Uh, you ought to go out there and follow his content. But having said that, brother, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Very man. interesting sitting down with you. Yes, it was a lot of fun. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Value Tainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five star, write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bid David. And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.